This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Kyogen, the leading global provider of sample to insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Kyogen sample technologies isolate and process DNA, RNA, and proteins from blood, tissue, and other materials, while Kyogen assay technologies make them ready for analysis and bioinformatics report relevant and actionable insights. Today's presentation is titled Critical Success Factors for Sample Collection, Storage, and Retrieval and is being presented by Dr. Sharon King, Manager of the Tayside Biorepository at the University of Dundee, Scotland. Sharon graduated in 2004 from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland with a joint Bachelor's of Science Honours degree in Biology with French. She then completed her PhD in the Department of Pathology at the University of Dundee in Scotland, focusing on the role of KRAS4A in hormone-dependent responses in the renal tubule and its association with renal carcinogenesis. Sharon has worked within a variety of translational-based projects using human and mouse tissues, including PLK1 repression in breast cancer where she was awarded the Sir Alistair Curry Prize in St. Andrews, Scotland for her work. In 2015, she became more closely involved with the governing the use of human tissue as an invaluable research tool and became manager of the Tayside Tissue Bank, which is a part of a wider British or Scottish biorepository network supported by the Chief Scientist Office. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Sharon at the end. So now, over to you, Sharon, for the presentation. Thank you very much, and thank you to you all for joining me today to discuss critical success factors while collating and storing human tissue. As I'm sure you're all aware, the availability of human tissue to support medical research is critical to advance translational research, but it's also something that we shouldn't take for granted. It's a real privilege to be able to use human tissue and it's vital that we collate, store and process tissue in the most efficient manner um, to make sure that researchers get the most reproducible data from the tissue. So this seminar will very much focus on how we go about doing that um, and in addition it will also elaborate upon the opportunities that working with human tissue can provide to researchers. So what um, I'll, I'll sort of discuss with you today are um, looking at the sort of bio, the models of biobanking that can exist um, and how they go about supporting um, researchers and really the importance of using human tissue in translational research. I'll also discuss a little bit about the logistics of tissue collection and the consideration to a wide variety of tissue types um, and that brings with it a lot of issues with space limitations as well. I won't talk too much about governance and traceability because you could, you could actually talk a whole webinar on that but it is something that's important to bear in mind throughout this presentation. 
um, and also it'll ensure the best quality. Uh, we'll talk about ensuring the best quality of tissue for um, some more complex uh, um, services, for example, tissue microarray and next generation sequencing. Um, we'll also consider some uh, some of the pros and cons with banking and prospective collections and then I'll go on to talk a little bit more about what we do here at Tayside Tissue Bank in Scotland and how we're moving forward as a biorepository to help improve the opportunities um, available for researchers. So there's quite a lot um, to get through. So some of you may be aware that in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, um, there, there was a scandal that involved unauthorised removal, retention and disposal of human tissue in Britain. And I think this is something that's probably worldwide um, previously as well. And certainly the media got hold of this and they very much looked at um, the, the unauthorised retention of children's organs. So it very much was in the public eye. And it was recognised that, there, that, that there's a very much a need for um, working with human tissue, but that um, it has to be done in a very controlled environment. So that was uh, this led to a number of reports, and that then led to very much um, the creation of, of biobanks, where you they would be there to provide a, a resource of readily available tissue for medical research, but really ensure strong governance. Um, and to really maintain a, a method of collecting, storing and using tissue in the most responsible manner. So um, just to, to sort of highlight some of the, the, the different uh, tissue bank models that do exist very briefly, the tissue banking model is the most traditional um, and probably the oldest model. And this very much represents tissue that's been stored over a number of years. It's not specific to research. It's um, it's it's very much approaching uh, a variety of different um, uh, patients as, as they, they come in for their surgery. So over the years, you can really build up huge uh, numbers of tissue types, and it can have quite a, a impact on storage. The prospective collection model is much more a fluid model. It's it's bringing it's bringing tissue in to your biorepository that's specific to individual research requirements, and then it's it's processing it and moving it back out to researchers as quickly as possible. So it has minimal um, effect on storage, and really a tissue biorepository model is a combination of both the banking and prospective collection model, and this very much um, finds a nice balance between the two of them. So although you have these different types of um, biobanks, they very much have the same goals. They're there to consent patients so that any tissue that's surplus to diagnosis or tissue that's um, disposed of after an operation can be harnessed and be used. That's done in a very respectful manner um, so that the patients are never put under any pressure um, to do so. We're also then responsible for logging the, the, the information regarding the tissue um, and we do that using a, a, very, uh, a very coherent database so that we can track at all points where uh, the samples are, um, both when they're being stored but also when they're released um, to researchers. We're also there to make sure that we help researchers to apply for tissue and that can be done 
through tissue uh, applications or tissue requests. But we're also, we're not just there to give the tissue out, we're also there to make sure that we provide services needed to actually carry out the research. And that may be on certain MNIST chemical services or tissue micro-reconstruction, for example. What you do find is that biobanks or biorepositories will carry out some of their own research, and that's very much there um, to help to advance some of the, the um, technology that's available for using with human tissue. So, for example, optimizing RNA recovery from different types of tissue can be one example. And um, we very much want to work closely with um, both nationally and locally uh, as a processing and collection centre for a large number of clinical trials. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later on and some of the challenges that that brings to biobanking. So very much what we're here to do is to provide researchers support, help and advice throughout the whole of your research project. Um, and we can do that right at the very start uh, where we um, can sit down with researchers and uh, put costs together for grants. We can also discuss the feasibility of the actual experiment themselves, whether we have enough tissue to provide or whether we need larger cohorts. And we also are there to make sure we establish clinical collaborations with researchers very early on. Once we have the tissue, we very much um, make sure that we acquire it in the best possible manner and we store it so that it's preserved um, almost instantly. And that then allows for good quality tissue for research, researchers to use thereafter. It can be quite daunting as well for people to work with human tissue if they haven't done so already. So we'll always provide training. Um, we'll, we'll provide training in certain techniques. We'll also, it's also becoming very, very common for people who use human tissue to be trained in good clini clinical laboratory practice. So we can help to arrange that as well. And as I've said, I won't go into too much detail about this because it does tend, people do tend to switch off, but as you can appreciate, there's an enormous amount of governance and legislation involved with working with human tissue. And we are always here to provide support so that when researchers do work with human tissue, they know that they're doing so under uh, the most um, effective manner. So really we're here as an organisational unit. We work very closely with patient information, the safe havens, so that we can um, allow a lot of interaction between tissue and patient data. And this is just some of the tissue that we can provide for researchers. Once we have um, a patient that's been consented, we then will uh, collect that tissue from surgery and we can provide fresh tissue and fresh tissue is something that's becoming very common, very popular and that tends to be from patients who undergo surgery um, where there's an excess of skin that would otherwise be thrown out for example. So patients will consent to us using that instead of it just being discarded. That's really useful for generating cell lines for example for um, using tissue for enzyme assays or metabolism experiments. Drug development is obviously hugely uh, important nowadays, uh, protein extraction. 
If, however, that tissue has to be examined by a pathologist, the pathologist will then uh, take the tissue, will take what they require for diagnosis. And then any tissue that's surplus to diagnosis, we can then store um, for further um, work in the future. And that very much is stored as frozen tissue, where we have small aliquots that can be used for um, a variety of different nucleic acid extractions or protein extractions and also fixed tissues so for example um, paraffin embedded tissue that we use for immunohistochemistry, immunofluorescence and co-localization experiments as well so there's quite a large variety that, that you can access. I'll just go in a little bit of detail into each of these different tissue types so we can just consider a little bit about some of the, the um, issues regarding storage, for example. Um, with fresh tissue, this very much fits under our prospective collection, so we very much listen to the specific requirements of researchers and we work with them to make sure that the tissue that we're providing is um, maintained and provided to them in a very short time frame. And that allows that tissue to be moved very quickly. It provides minimal storage requirements for us. But also, because this is fresh tissue, there are issues with regards to making sure we do give this to a researcher um, in the best quality possible. So we have to make sure right at the start that if researchers are using fresh tissue, for example, for enzyme functionality experiments or metabolism, that we consider what, if there's appropriate buffers that might be used. Um, and we work very closely with our surgical team to make sure that they're happy to put the, the tissue into these buffers for us, right the word go, so that it's not sitting around um, under any lights, for example. That then brings us to frozen bank tissue. Now, frozen bank tissue, can, as I've already said, can be built up over a number of years, and you can have a huge variety of different tissue, tissue types. It's not just solid tissue that you can collect. You can also collect a large variety of um, samples, including blood plasma. We have some teeth. We have pleural fluids. We have DNA and RNA as well. Um, we've even had legs as well at some point. So all of these different types of tissue um, really reflect the type of storage that you have to use um, to maintain these in the best possible um, manner. So, for example, there's a, there's a large variety of different types of storage you can use. Some tubes can be very small and specific for liquids that you can aliquot into small volumes. Um, and obviously, different, um, different sizes of tissue can be required as well. So that has a huge impact on how we store our tissue. And we need to really make sure that we, we maximize that uh, to the best of our advantage. It's also important that when we do store um, our tissue, they're maintained within ultra-low uh, freezers, and those freezers very much um, are monitored, and we make sure they're linked up to a computer that has an alarm on it. So if there's any temperature fluctuations that cause any problems, they'll phone our mobiles, especially if we're out the building, and that'll notify us of any issues um, so we can have a backup freezer to store anything um, in it. The other thing as well to um, think about is that it's important not to store your precious samples all in the one, 
one area. So we tend to try to um, have samples in maybe two different types of freezers split. So if one goes down, we always have um, samples in the other one. It's really important as well that to use this type of tissue, um, because there's so much being stored, we have to make sure that we do use it and it's not just sitting there because the longer tissue sits there it's, it's unethical if it's not being used so it's something that we really have to promote researchers to use um, their tissue. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So the third type of tissue is obviously a paraffin embedded tissue Again, this is something that you can have huge amount of storage um, of tissue that's surplus to diagnosis and a lot of it's held within the pathology archive. So we make sure that all of this tissue is recorded, it's held within um, very good drawers that we can basically go in, take out what we need and we make sure we record what we take out so if any uh, clinician requires it, they'll know where it, where it is. Um, it's very important that when you use this type of tissue to get the best use out of it, you think about having a quality assurance um, to basically justify how much tissue you're going to use. And you can do that by um, examining, along with a pathologist, they're very helpful to how much tissue is within a block, what percentage of that tissue is um, is tumour for example um, and that gives you an understanding as to maybe how much sections you need to cut for your actual experiment. The other thing as well is that antibodies are very um, expensive, we don't just want to put them straight onto human tissue because a, uh, you don't want to waste your antibody and you certainly don't want to waste any human tissue. So we offer a facility um, whereby you would use cell line pellets and we, we can use any cell line pellet that represents your type of tissue. We use that to basically optimise the amount of antibody that you require but also um, to work out where your protein of interest may be expressed, whether it's cytoplasmic or nucleic, for example. In order to be able to um, you know, get tissue from a patient and all the way to giving it to a, a, a researcher, it really relies very heavily on building essential clinical collaborations. So um, tissue banks are very much there to to act as the middle person to um, allow researchers to interact with research nurses, um, with theatre staff, surgical teams, clinical teams and pathology and having that support there always ensures that you get the best um, from the tissue. So if we just consider a little bit about using banked and prospective collections, um, Banked tissue is really, really important because you get access to tens of thousands of samples. It's not, it's not specific at that point in time for researchers, but if researchers do come to you and decide they need um, something, then we, we tend to have the tissue available for them. So they don't have to wait very long for that tissue. However, prospective collection um, is very important, in particular with fresh tissue. But what's important to consider there is that you can't guarantee when the surgery will take place 
for that specific tissue. So it might be that you actually have to wait a few months to generate that tissue for your research. So it's about finding a really good balance between working with banked tissue that may already be available and then waiting for the prospective fresh tissue to come into play. It's really important to have um, strong infrastructure in a tissue bank to make sure that there's a smooth running um, of, of your tissue bank. As you can appreciate, you know, you build up um, huge numbers of tissue samples. And the best way to keep track of that is by having a very strong, robust database that is traceable. It allows you to know when the samples are um, within your uh, tissue bank and then where they're going um, and when the when the tissue's been destroyed, for example, if it's if it's finished with. Um, we're also audited very regularly, once or twice a year, and that's there to maintain that um, all of our, our services are, are running effectively. Our freezers are working well, for example. Um, we very much have SOPs, standards of operations, that we, we update every couple of years if it is required. And we're quite willing to, to work with biobanks, biorepositories, to share those as well. Um, and we, we make that evident for researchers too. And obviously I've mentioned this many times, but really good governance is vital to ensure that you have um, good quality tissue that's been um, approved for release to, to researchers. If you have a really good functioning tissue bank that has great quality tissue, then it really allows you to open up a number of doors as to what you can do with it. These are just some of the techniques that you can use in working with human tissue. So for example, immunohistochemistry, um, histology, co-localization immunofluorescence, um, a variety of nucleic acid extractions that can go on to um, be important for genomics, next generation sequencing, and proteomics as well. And that's not an exhaustive list. So if we just chat a little bit about two techniques that are really quite complex um, service requests. And, and this gives us a little bit of idea as to why it is so important to have good quality tissue. Tissue microarrays is, is a, a really powerful tool um, that's relatively new in the pathology field, um, but it really allows you to analyze a large cohort of tissue. Um, and it allows you to take representative cores from an original tissue block and then make a new um, tissue uh, type that will have lots of areas of small representation of tissue. And what that allows you to do is then section that and stain a large cohort of tissue with a variety of different markers. It allows you to amplify a very rare resource and in particular is important for conserving valuable tissue types. It allows you to be experimentally uniform as well. You can have simultaneous analysis and it allows you to have quantification as well. And that's something that's really useful because sometimes it can be quite subjective um, when you look at this chemistry. It also very much allows you to reduce the volume of reagents that you, you work with. So for example, you can reduce your antibody um, volumes. But there really is an enormous amount of work and time and effort that goes into building um, robust tissue microarrays. And that really does rely on having good storage, retrieval, and good 
clinical collaborations. Um, and that allows you to work very closely with pathologists to mark the different areas of the tissue that you require, to map the particular donor slides, to build your array, to then stain it, analyse it, and then do your analysis. And when you have really strong tissue microarrays, it really allows you to open a, a variety of different doors where you can have high throughput histopathology, you can use a variety of different immunohistochemical stains, um, you can use immunofluorescence and such a hybridization fish and um, histochemical stains as well. And this is just a picture of me uh, as, a, as a young postdoc who, you know, very much used tissue microarrays in a lot of my work and um, very much got an appreciation of, of how good quality tissue can, be, can build up on these really powerful tools for research. The other thing that's important to consider is next generation sequencing. Now I'm using a particular study that we're about to become involved with. Now we are based, this is the, the map of the UK, oh, I'll just go back, and uh, we are based just up here, just in Dundee in Scotland, um, and we're about to take hold of uh, 4,500 blood and tissue samples from 69 confirmed sites in the UK, and that's all of the orange sites that you see there on that map. Um, a variety of different tissue types, and as you have a huge appreciation, um, this is a, a very large coordinated effort um, that, that you know is allowing us to really have a good think about the logistics of um, storing uh, these samples, and also how do we then store them in the best possible way so that the researchers can come back five years later um, and tell us what they require for when they start their translational research. So some of the, the considerations to think about that is obviously the length of storage that you, you have to keep your tissue for. Some people want to be able to um, provide blocks of tissue, which is preferred. Um, other places would like to send curls, actual sections that have been cut already to us. And this provides a little bit of debate because um, in some, some cases if you cut your tissue and then have to store that for five years, your integrity of that tissue may be compromised. The other thing to consider for these long, um, sort of long storage uh, prior to doing translational research is, you know, how many sections will you need and, and is it better to cut five times four micron sections or two times ten micron sections? And also how best do you then store the curls or the types of tissue that you're working with? And again, the best, the best way and the most important thing to have is a really important database um, that's there for uh, easy retrieval so that five years down the line, um, when the client comes back to us or the researcher comes back to us, then we can pull out precisely what they need and carry out the translational next generation sequencing that they require. So what I hope I've just shown you in just the, the last uh, slides there is that Biobanks and biorepositories really do work well um, as a, in a collaborative manner to ensure that tissue is collected and stored in the best possible way to allow reproducible research. There's an enormous amount of governance that takes place to make sure that we know where the tissue is at, at all times and that also helps us to make sure that tissue is looked after. 
I'm very much here to support and help plan experiments right from the grant planning stage all the way through to carrying out the actual research. Um, and there's a lot of consideration that's got to be given to long-term translational research when you're working with human tissue and storage and space is always a premium in any um, bioresource. So in the last 10 minutes or so, I just want to briefly um, introduce our, our own tissue bank. Tayside Tissue Bank, as I've said, we're based in Dundee um, in Scotland. Uh, this is our website link and my own email and I'm very happy to um, speak with anybody after this as well if, if you do wish to do so. We provide a, a large variety of different tissue types, both formal and fixed tissue, snap frozen tissue and also fresh tissue collections as well. Um, and we, work, we, we have a very good system that allows you to um, log into the website, create your own account you can then apply for tissue online in a very easy manner. That's then um, passed on to a committee and that committee just makes sure that you've thought about everything to do with them, how to carry out your work and then we very much give a, a very quick answer as to whether the samples are released to you. In addition to that, we provide a, a large variety of services to complement uh, giving you the tissue. We embed and cut the tissue, um, we provide standard histological stains as well as specialised stains. We also uh, carry immunohistochemistry, immunofluorescence. Um, we also extract nucleic acids, um, RNA and DNA by using the EZ1 by robot um, from Kyogen and this is a, a great tool that's there to provide a large um, variety of or a large number of standardised extractions from a large number of tissues uh, and it's done in a very clean manner and you get very good quality um, DNA or RNA from that. We also extract protein and again that's done using a tissue lyser from Kyogen which um, allows you to homogenise mechanically up to 48 samples um, and, and is really done to the, we basically use a buffer that's specific to the requirements of the researcher as well. We're very, very keen to work with researchers to do what suits them best. We have an Aperio slide scanner which is a very powerful tool. This can be used to scan either whole sections or tissue microarrays and that then allows you to remotely access that. So for example, pathologists can score your tissue microarrays in a remote access for example. Um, and as I've said, tissue microarrays is something that uh, is, is a very important tool that we have as well. We also apply all of these um, services to people who work with mouse tissue. Um, and it's also really important that when you have put in so much effort to get good quality staining on your tissue, for example, that you then have a good appropriate imaging technique to, to really do it justice. So we work very closely with our imaging suite within the university as well to provide research researchers advice. Um, this is just a slide just to show some of the tissue microarrays that we do have. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this to your attention is we're very keen to always um, hear from researchers 
um, about what types of tissue microarrays may be important in the future for translational research. Um, and we have a collaboration between Edinburgh and Dundee, uh, where we have funding to provide a technical post to put together um, new tissue microarrays. So very happy to hear of any suggestions for that as well. We're here to provide tissue for the whole of the universities, but we also um, are heavily involved with clinical trials. We also support local companies and we work very closely with Stratified Medicine Scotland um, and Biopta. Um, so as you can imagine, there's an enormous demand for uh, human tissue and we're always trying to find ways of keeping up with that demand and one of the ways that we're doing that is uh, within Scotland and this is something that's not unique to Scotland it happens globally uh, we very much are working more towards acting as a biorepository network and the, the idea behind this is that um, in each case uh, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses and somebody may not be able to provide researcher with a specific tissue type but that doesn't mean to say you can't still do that research and, and how that would work is uh, you would approach the manager of the biorepository closest to you and they would then be responsible for networking with the rest of the, uh, the biorepositories to find out precisely what you had available to, to use. System does work and, and just to prove that we have a researcher at Dundee who requires lung tissue, we don't do that routinely in Dundee. So we've had normal lung sent from um, the north of Scotland and we've had COPD lung tissue from Glasgow and Edinburgh. And that's all coming to Dundee and then we're going to sit down with the researcher to help them take that further. So what that really means is working as a part of a biorepository network is that not only do you have access to tens of thousands of samples, but you've actually increased that to millions of samples. And it's much easier to move that tissue around um, the country or to wherever it needs to go much easier. And it's governed much better as well. So by way of conclusion from me then, um, I think what I've shown you today is really that you know, to try and put the point across that human tissue is there to be used. It shouldn't just be stored. We should make sure that um, we, we really uh, promote this to be used in translational research as much as possible. It really is an invaluable tool to use as a platform for medical research. Um, and in order to do that, it's, it's paramount that there's a lot of uh, collaboration um, built up. And as moving forward, biobanks and biorepositories really must work very closely to get together as networks. And this is something that I'm very, um, very keen to promote uh, for Tayside Tissue Bank as well. My details are there, um, so please do contact me if there's anything you need to discuss. Um, and I'm going to hand over now to um, Kaijun. Thank you, Sharon. I think that was that was that was really a very nice overview that you gave to the audience. And uh, from my end, I would just like to 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 show this one slide to the audience. And uh, because I think biobanking is really an interesting and special community, and because of that, uh, Kaijin at Kaijin, we have a lot of solutions from from collection to the to the sample retrieval. But at the same time, we want to help the community, and we started this new blog, which is called Biobanking. It's under the category section of, of a big, bigger blog, which is Biomarker Insights, where we 
researchers, the people of R&D of KaiGen, the product managers, and the marketing people. Everyone comes together and talk about the new things. So I just wanted to show this to everyone. Uh, when you get the chance, please go there and and definitely have a look look there. If you have any comments, you can you can directly comment over there, uh, or you can you can send an email to us, and we will be happy to to get your inputs and make more more such blog posts. So there is a there is a there is a link over there, and I think Amanda also sent sent you the link for to go and and look at the biobanking blog from us. Yeah, that's that's quickly from my side. Thank you. Well, great. Thank you, Sharon. That was an excellent presentation. And we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So the first question I have is, what conditions do you suggest they, that's the nurses, keep this tissue in the meantime before it gets to you in the lab? Yeah, I mean, that that's quite tricky because every every hospital is different size and for example you know Tayside Tissue Bank is not a particularly big hospital so for us to bring tissue from theatre to pathology for example is very very quick so we tend to put it in a bucket and it comes straight to pathology. If you require to put it in something for fresh tissue because it's going to be um, a buffer required or metabolism or enzyme assays, the best thing to do is to sit down with the researcher um, because the likelihood is that they already have it in a protocol. If, however, there are, I mean, there, there's, there's some hospitals that are enormous and that work with other satellite hospitals, um, and really that's quite challenging. Um, most biobanks have couriers that can courier tissue from um, one hospital to another and they tend to be very specialised couriers that understand and appreciate the requirement to get tissue to um, a hospital very quickly. Um, we tend to say about an hour, an hour is our kind of maximum cutoff to get tissue um, from one area to the other if fresh. If it's frozen tissue, the best thing to do is to get it into liquid nitrogen at the time when it comes out at, at surgery. And the best way to, 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 to achieve that is to work very closely with the surgical team and the theatre nurses. Um, and they tend to be very good um, at being able to just you know, pop some, some tissue into a tube and then put it into liquid nitrogen. Um, and they're very happy to have the research nurses working with them too. But again, it's something that relies very heavily on collaborating with researchers and collaborating with your surgical staff. I hope that's answered your question. Thank you. I think that did. Um, I have another question, and it's if the tissue process, if there will be a delay, is there any special fluid that um, can be directly applied to the tissues? That's actually a very good question, and I don't know the answer to that um, because it's not something that I've ever had to come across as of yet. But I'm very happy to do a little bit of research into that and get back to the person who um, has asked that question if they want to leave an email address. Okay. Yeah, if um, he leaves an email address, I will go ahead and pass it along to you. That would be super. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, and then I have another question. This is from Rena. 
and she wonders about what you would suggest about the temperature and time for baking FFPE samples onto glass slides. She says some people do not believe in warming above 37 degrees overnight, however others do not like to bake below 60 degrees overnight. And she would really appreciate your ideas on this topic for using these slides in immunohistochemistry and in situ hybridization. Again, I think the best thing to do for that would be for me to, to email personally because okay. um, that actually is something that I can discuss with the people who do that in our biobank um, routinely and they would they will provide a better answer than I will, <laughs> if that's okay. Well, we have um, Rena's email address, so we'll go ahead and pass that along to you and you can email her directly. That's super, thank you. So I have um, another question and this is with respect to sample acquisition for biobanking, in order to minimize mix-up errors, does it make sense to have a biological code associated with the sample at the time of collection? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Coding is very, very important. Um, it's something that you will see in biobanks, but every biobank may have a different way of doing it. So um, the other thing is that a lot of it will be anonymized. Um, the tissue must be anonymized first. So a lot of people will put a biological code on it. And some people may put something to represent the FFPE tissue. Other people might put something on for bloods. Um, and then they, they will have their own, um, their own code. I'm not aware of there being a right or wrong code. I think you have to pick something that represents what you have and also that uh, reflects the patient in an anonymized manner. Okay. And um, the last question I have is how do you see biobanking changing the next five to ten years? I think biobanking and biorepositories are going to become very, very um, important, um, in particular for translational research. The reason being is that there is much more emphasis placed on using human tissue to use it as a platform for a lot of cellular models. Um, the other issue is that you know we 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 do obviously do a lot of work with with mouse tissue and animal models and in vivo models and that's still very very important but there are restrictions in, in place with that as well and the European Union they've very much been in talks about um, using mouse tissue for, for research. So it may be that in the future there will be more restrictions that come out of that and obviously working with human tissue is something that is, um, is very important to, to fill that gap but also it's a really good way of actually being able to validate a lot of the cellular and molecular models that we already have um, and it, you know you don't want to waste a lot of time looking in a particular cellular model and then you come to using the human tissue and actually realize that the, the, the molecular works maybe not quite what is actually happening in human tissue. I think it will become very big and I think networking together is very much something that's going to become very important and transparency between biobanks as well is very, very important. Okay, well I think that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thank you again, Sharon, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Kyogen.
And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminar's page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you at the Bite Size Bios Webinar Festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Kyogen and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.